Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 19th of October, Ralph Cunnington taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the first of those sessions, where Ralph takes us through the books of Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd and 3rd John and Jude. Ralph is the senior pastor at City Church Manchester. Let's take a listen to the session. Hello everyone. It's great to be with you. Let's give thanks so we can gather together on this Saturday from so many different fellowships uh, to study God's word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you are building your church, uh, that it is more than any one of our local churches. Thank you that you are the great builder. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are Lord of your church. Thank you that you have given her everything she needs in your word by your spirit. And Lord, we pray that as we dig into the book of Hebrews, as we uh, look at the books that follow, as we, as we think about the privilege the honour, the delight of prayer, that you would be with us, you guide us, that you would help us to grow in our knowledge and love of you, that we would grasp the full expanse of it, and that in so doing, uh, you might make your dwelling in us and make us more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, let me just tell you where we're heading um, uh, this morning. So we're going to be, we're supposed to be looking at the whole of the book of Hebrews uh, to, through to Jude, right? Now, Andy asked me to do that, and I felt that was a little bit too much in an hour and a half. So I am going to do that, but the big focus is going to be on the book of Hebrews. And I realise it's a Saturday morning, uh, we're all a little bit tired, you do not want to listen to me the whole time. Um, so there's going to be quite a lot of group work, particularly on the book of Hebrews, um, but it's going to be fronted and ended by bits from me. Does that make sense? Uh, and then I'm going to run you through the other books, so at least you have a summary, so you can go back uh, and tell people what the books are about, kind of generally. Okay? But... To get you thinking, uh, into your tables, and I would like you just to chat amongst yourselves and say, what do you think Hebrews is? What is Hebrews? Right, should we come back together? What did you come up with? What is the book of Hebrews? It's a letter. Okay, why do you say it's a letter? Because they all said that it was. There's a brilliant reason. So at the end of chapter 13, what do we have at the end of chapter 13? Yep. Yes. Okay. Does anyone want to dispute? So that everyone over here, including Andy, it seems, says letter, and you guys think letter because of the way it ends, and it's got some greetings at the end. No, we think not a letter. You think not a letter? Why? So, if 
it's a letter, maybe it's three quarters of a letter. <laughs> it's, it, 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 it's more like a preach. It's somebody's notes or it's a theological essay. Yeah, what makes you say it's more like a preach? What, what particular things have you seen in Hebrews that makes you think it's more like a preach? I think there's a, the journey that it takes you on, the way it's structured, leading Old Testament, leading to new, pointing to Jesus. Kind of, it's the way I would look to structure something if I was trying to deliver a message mm. on that. So that's the way it resonates. Yeah, so use the Old Testament, the way that it's structured together and develops themes throughout the letter, builds and builds, yep. Yeah, ends with a lot of application, chapter 13, yep. Anyone else? Yeah, so teaching, 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 example, and all with a theme of, of don't turn your back on Jesus. Don't go back. Don't go back. Yeah. Anyone else? <coughs> I think it was a Jewish equivalent to the letter to the Romans, almost. Okay, what do you mean by Jewish equivalent to the letter to the Romans? Well, it's, 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 uh, talking about how Jesus, it's talking about how Jesus is the answer, how he fulfills like, the, the, the priestly system of all, and then how he is, he is God's answer to Yeah, which is similar to Romans. Yeah. yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, I think on balance it's probably not a letter, uh, but was probably distributed as a letter. So common, it's fair to say commentaries are divided. You guys aren't necessarily wrong. <laughs> Don't hear me saying that. Um, so, so the kind of the mainline easy access Bible commentary, the BST, would would talk about it as a letter throughout. Uh, but as you guys said, the problem is that, that it doesn't start like a letter, and it actually starts. Uh, like a, a Jewish homily, uh, the introduction you get, and, and some of you are going to be looking, particularly verses 1 to 3, it, it starts by presenting the theme that, that the final and full revelation has come in Jesus. He is the final word. Uh, and then the rest of the book is all about explaining how he is the, the better one that the Old Testament scriptures spoke of, how he fulfills all of the types, all of the forms, all of the shadows of the Old Testament. And actually right at the end in that, in that section which made us think it might be a letter, uh, chapter 13 verse 22, the author says, brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, uh, word or, or message of exhortation. And that word word of exhortation, message of exhortation, is actually used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe a sermon. So in Acts chapter 13, verses 14 to 15, uh, when Barnabas and Paul are invited to preach in the synagogue in Poseidon Antioch, it is described as a word of exhortation. And the structure seems to be like the, the structure of, of a, a homily of the day. So, so presenting an Old Testament text, developing the theme, drawing out words and phrases, and then moving to exhortation. And then doing that again, going to an Old Testament text, another Old Testament text, drawing out a common theme, repeated words, and then developing it and moving to exhortation. Um, so I think probably on balance, it is a sermon uh, that there was then sent out and wrapped up with the greetings we find uh, at the end.
But I guess that raises the question, well, well, who wrote this sermon? Who wrote Hebrews? Uh, Now, the authorship of the book of Hebrews has been disputed, really, since the second century. Uh, Because, as we've seen, it doesn't include the opening greeting, we're not told who the author is. So the earliest suggestions of who the author might be included um, the Apostle Paul, uh, Luke, Clement of Rome, because of that mention of Italy at the end, uh, or Barnabas. Now, more recently, there's been suggestions uh, that it could be Priscilla. So it may be a lady who wrote this. Uh, Jude, Apollos, uh, Philip, or Silvanus. But the truth is, we just don't know. We don't know who wrote this book. It does seem, as, as you've said down here, it does seem that, that the author was probably influenced by Paul in various ways. He has a clear and profound theology of who Jesus is, what he came into the world to do, and how he fulfills the Old Testament. He is deeply steeped in the Old Testament scriptures. He knows them deeply, and he knows Jewish rabbinical arguments about what is going on in the Old Testament scriptures. You know, the book of Hebrews contains no less than 35 direct quotations from the Old Testament and a further 34 allusions. So not direct quotations, but references to the Old Testament. That gives you 69 Old Testament references in just 13 chapters. 69 in 13 chapters. You can do the maths uh, on that. Now, while we don't know exactly who the author is, we do know some things about him. Uh, Firstly, we know that he was almost certainly a Hellenistic Jew. Now, Hellenistic Jews are first mentioned in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. And they're the Jewish people who spoke Greek, which was the language of the day, and were scattered amongst the Gentiles. Uh, The the term Hellenized simply means to adopt the Greek language and forms and culture as their understanding of the world. Now, alongside having adopted those Greek cultural forms, uh, we know that the author was was Jewish and had a robust understanding of the Old Testament. He sees that the whole of the Old Testament points towards Jesus as the Messiah and as the Saviour. Jesus we're told, is the ultimate prophet after Moses. Uh, Jesus is the ultimate high priest, not merely in the line of Aaron, but in the line of Melchizedek, the priest forever. Uh, John Piper sums up the point well about who the author is. He says, the point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ, God's son, has not just come to fit into the earthly system of priestly ministry as the best and final priest, but he has come to fulfill and put an end to that system and to orient all of our attention on himself, ministering for us in heaven. The Old Testament tabernacle and priests and sacrifices were shadows. Now the reality has come and the shadows pass away. The author was Jewish. He saw how Jesus fulfilled every Jewish picture, every type of the Old Testament met in Christ. But he was also a Hellenistic Jew rather than a Hebraic Jew. The the Greek used in this letter is some of the most sophisticated Greek we find anywhere in the New Testament. More sophisticated even than Dr. Luke in Acts and Luke's Gospel. Uh, There is a vast vocabulary used here. He, He was clearly brought up in the Greek language and had a very, very good use of it. 
So, he was a Hellenistic Jew. Number two, he was a compassionate academic. He, he was clearly smart, the author. Well-read. Uh, he closely studied the Old Testament. He, he has a profound understanding and theology. But yet he is also a very compassionate individual. He doesn't sit in an ivory tower preaching a sermon of deep, profound theological truths in abstraction. He deeply cares about the people he's preaching to and the people he intends this sermon to go to. He understands that, that they are scattered and they are living under intense pressure and persecution. He realises that they are probably living under the terrifying rule of Nero with his persecution. And the author shows empathy to those hearers throughout. He shows that he was familiar with their hardships and what they were going through. Sometimes we can, we can look at a book of Hebrews and we can get lost in, in the deep theological thought. We can, we can see all the amazing pictures fulfilled in Jesus... But that's not the author's primary concern. His primary concern is, is what that means for these people as they're facing such persecution and as they are tempted to turn their backs on Jesus, as they're tempted to go back and take the easy life in Judaism. He wants them to understand that Jesus is better, that Jesus is worth it. Now, this combination of profound theological reflection with pastoral care and sensitivities is wonderfully, wonderfully seen in Hebrews uh, chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 2. Uh, the author reaches the climax to his argument, and he describes Jesus as being the author and perfecter, the pioneer and perfecter, verse 2, of the faith. But then he combines that with this repeated encouragement of believers to keep going, keep going, keep going. Do not fall away from the faith. The author is absolutely determined to build up believers as they are rooted in the supremacy and completion and the ultimateness of Jesus as God's full and final revelation and saving plan. Uh, listen to Dr. Eckhard Schnabel. It's a great name, isn't it? He says this. What we also learn about this author is that he was really concerned about the people he was preaching to and writing for. He was concerned about their spiritual apathy. And so he comes back again and again to the danger of becoming weak or tired or even apostatized, turning their back on Jesus. And so he was certainly a superb theologian and interpreter of scripture, but at the same time, he was a person who knew his audience very well, evidently personally very well. He really cared about them and was marshalling everything that he could in terms of theology, interpretation of scripture and application to help them in their spiritual pilgrimage. I mean, that's an interesting description of the author, isn't it? It's an interesting description of a preacher. We tend to divide, don't we, between, between those preachers who, who, who want to teach theology, who, who are academic, who want to go into the real depths of Scripture and get really excited about that. They're on one side. And then on the other, we have, you know, the better communicators, those who really care about application, those, those who connect the Bible to our real life. 
But do you see what the book of Hebrews teaches? That those two things, are, they're not separate. That there's not deep theology over here and real life application over here. If we really care about our people, if we really care about our own souls, we will always bring these two together. The best thing for you and I, as we face persecution, as we face suffering, as we face difficulty in the Christian life, it is not to find some new truths, but it's to dig deeper into Jesus. That's the burden of the book of Hebrews. Uh, moving on to dating. Uh, it's much easier to date the book of Hebrews than to know its author. Uh, most scholars agree that it was written sometime between 60 and 70 AD, so before the fall of Jerusalem, but during intense persecution. Uh, this small snapshot of history uh, tells us quite a lot about what was going on. This was the height of Emperor Nero's reign and persecution of Christians. It, it was a dangerous time and a time of great uncertainty. There, there was much pressure on Christians to conform. Uh, listen to the Roman historian Tacitus uh, describe what was life was like under Nero's reign. He says this, Following Emperor Nero's command let the Christians be exterminated. They, that is the Christians, were made the subjects of sport. They were covered with the hides of wild beasts and torn to pieces by dogs or nailed to crosses or set fire to. And when the day waned, they were burned to serve for the evening lights. It's a bit different to who... I'll be preaching to on Sunday, isn't it? And who you'll be sitting amongst. The, these, these listeners, they were under intense, intense persecution. The, the great Jewish-Roman war also fell within these dates. This was a series of revolts by the Jews against the Roman occupation. The first Jewish-Roman war was in 66 AD. Nero commanded Vespasian who would go on to be emperor, to end the uprising by crushing the Jews in Judea. Now, many Jewish converts to Christianity would have felt pressure to, to revert back to their Jewish roots. Uh, under this sort of persecution, uh, they would have felt that their, their community was telling them to go back, to, to show loyalty. And the writer is aware of, of the, the pressure of both the persecution and, and that cultural pressure on them. To go back to who they are, to, to who they truly are, to where their identity is really to be found. That is the context into which this was written. So Roman, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 to 3. The, the writer gives this encouragement to his readers. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of the faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's the context being written into. Uh, the, the recipients, they were a Jewish audience. That's clear from the assumption that they understand all of the references to the Old Testament. 
that they were a Hellenistic audience, able to understand this sophisticated Greek, that they were a persecuted audience. Uh, We get an insight into this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 37. We read this. Verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Now that word confidence that I've highlighted is is very important. The the author there uses a Greek word parousia, which means uh, courage or fearlessness, particularly in the presence of public figures. The author knew that his hearers and his readers would face intense persecution from their rulers. And that's what he's writing into. It's interesting, isn't it? Because that's that's not where we are at the moment, but that probably is where we're heading, isn't it? Uh, We're seeing it in subtle ways, whether it's the the difficulty that our churches find in finding new venues to rent. Uh, We see it in the way people respond to the way we raise our children. Uh, We see it uh, in the fact, I mean, just a trivial, well, it's not even trivial, actually, uh, the Chick-fil-A thing. Have you seen about that in the news? Uh, Chick-fil-A is a a U.S. restaurant that is opened uh, in a shopping centre in Reading which because of lobbying uh, about things they support back in America, they closed it down after six months. It's just chipping away bit by bit by bit. And we need to be ready for that level of persecution to come because it is kind of inevitable. And this letter is speaking exactly into that sort of situation. Uh, Listen to Dennis Johnson describing uh, the original audience of Hebrews. He says, the original audience faced a number of issues. As the author mentions in chapter 10, they had faced various forms of suffering. Some of them had lost property. Some of them had been imprisoned. They'd been subjected to public ridicule of some sort. And he still is urging the readers at this point, as he writes, to be willing to bear the reproach of Christ. To face exclusion from the camp, which he's describing in Old Testament terms, but probably means to be excluded from the synagogue. And if they were to go to Jerusalem to be excluded from the temple, which I believe was still standing as he wrote. So there are those forms of persecution they were facing. He says in chapter 12 that their sufferings had not escalated to the point of shedding blood. And yet he seems to be aware of their need to be assured that they have been set free from the fear of death, as he says in chapter 2, by the victory of Jesus Christ. So there may be that an even more intense persecution is on the horizon. So not yet dying, but soon to be. And they are mocked 
They are socially spurned. They are seen as being outsiders. That's been a way it's been for Christians in the large part of the church's history, hasn't it? Uh, one of my church members asked me uh, on Thursday night, uh, is it a good thing that Kanye West is seemingly professing faith? That's an interesting question. And it's a brilliant thing. It's a brilliant thing if, it, if it's a true, credible profession of faith. Because there's another person in the kingdom glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not going to get us credibility. It's not going to shore up our reputation. It's not going to make Christians cool. Because we've never been that way. And, and the only time when we have been the mainstream is when we've been utterly compromised by the union of church and state. The, the norm for Christians is to be on the margins of society, to be mocked. And the church grows, the church most grows, <laughs> when it's being intensely persecuted. It's what we see in China, it's what we see in India at the moment. So is that part of a Christian identity that I have to um, I think it's part of a Christian identity that I need to accept. Um, the, the danger with kind of... Uh, the danger of going down that path is, is persecution is never something we should seek out. It is not something that we should be looking for. We should, you know, 1 Timothy 2 tells us we should be seeking to live peaceful and quiet lives. But persecution is inevitable. If we, if we follow a crucified saviour, the path for us as Christians is to take up our cross, which, which primarily is a symbol of shame as well as suffering. So, so that is the norm in the Christian life. We're not looking uh, to, to, to have a kind of credible reputation to be seen and respected. But the gospel should lead to that. But the reality is in a sinful world, we will be hated. And this letter is written to people to prepare them for that. And of course, the temptation when we're hated is that we want to turn our back on Jesus. That's the final thing uh, about uh, this audience. Uh, they are sorely tempted to turn back, to turn back to Judaism, to turn back to credibility, to turn away from suffering, to give up on Jesus. So I'd like you in your tables just to turn together and work through those two questions. What pressures are Christians under today which tempt us to give up on Jesus? And then secondly, what can keep us going? So five minutes on that. Okay, should we come back together? So what sort of persecution, what sort of things are tempting people at your church to give up on Jesus? What struggles? Probably not being burnt as candles in someone's garden. <laughs> Okay. What sort of context is that? Um, so, I think... So, you know, so, I'm part of the Balakov congregation at CCM, so it's sort of 60-70% students. Yeah. And so, I think for a lot of people in that group, um, the, the kind of context they find themselves in is a lot of pressure. Like, how can you, how can you be a scientist mm. and believe this? Does that make sense? Yep. And so... Yeah, and so people are just being mocked as being yeah. intellectually inc lacking credibility. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. What else? Yeah, and the back. 
self-mocking mode, because they're not being mocked externally. It's self-mocking. If I believe one thing, and I, if I was lucky enough to be a scientist. Um, well, I guess in, in that situation, they're, they're trying to make a stand for their Christian faith in their context studying science, and other students just think that they're talking nonsense. And are they voicing that? Well, presumably. Well, there's, there's definitely, I've, I've, heard, I've heard stories, like a lot of our congregations study sciences in Manchester, because yeah. a lot of students in Manchester do, and, and just examples even of people saying, actually, my opinion is written off by even staff or other students because they know I'm Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is common, and it's common across the board, not just in the sciences. So I used to teach in law, um, and you know, Christians in the law school often came in for a hard time from some of my colleagues uh, because of their views on various things related to charities. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Sorry, I can't. Okay. Yeah. So calling in to question your integrity because they assume that you're just trying to back up your worldview as if they're not. Yes. Yeah. The pressure to follow culture, which is is really subtle, isn't it? And it shows itself in really small ways where we're just trying to gain acceptability, go along with the crowd. Yeah. And, Something I've seen is um, people tend to judge Christianity on Christians. Okay. And they, they tend to think that because they failed, that they, yeah. they go away with the hope. Yeah. And they think, well, if that's Christianity, I don't want it. Yeah. And the Bible says, as you know, in Hebrews, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that's the focus that we need to... Yes. Jesus is our example, not Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. We have a long and questionable history um, in terms of what people publicly perceive to be the church. Yeah, which is really problematic. On the back. Um, we were talking about the, this idea, the idea of cultural idea of tolerance. Yes. Um, so there's such a high thing, a high value on tolerance, but there's a, a misunderstanding of what tolerance is because culture seems to think that to be tolerant you have to... Um, not disagree and allow everybody to have their views but not ever say that anybody's actually wrong. Yes. Um, and I think it can be tempting for Christians to fall into that and say, uh, you know, on, on big issues like um, homosexuality, gender, identity, those kind of things are the big things at the moment. To kind of say, well, actually, it's okay and we're never going to say there's a line that's right and wrong because yeah. culture doesn't want to. Yeah. So the intolerance of tolerance in today's society. Uh, that, yeah, but I mean, by, by classical, a classical understanding of what tolerance is, it is intolerant because tolerance is allowing everyone to be able to have their view and express it, but not necessarily act on it. Which what we've seen in the last 20 years, and actually it's, it's led to change in the law, that is now not just a crime to incite actions, but it's a, it's a crime to propound certain views. Um, which is really, really significant. It's going to impact Christians in, in really terrible ways going forward. Yeah. And then, yeah.
Yeah, that's really that's great because I think we often think about the big things that those are the things that will stop us going forward with Jesus. Whereas our experience in church life is it's it's just the the apathy. It's just the the going along with what's easy. And Hebrews has loads to speak into us and on those very issues because it's all about who who is your king, who are you living for, who is your priest, where are you looking for identity, where are you looking for justification. Yeah. What was? Okay. I thought, oh, this political correctness gone mad. Everybody's tolerant except against Christians. Yeah. It doesn't matter where you come from. If you're a Muslim, everybody bows down because they're frightened of offending. Blah, blah, blah. But when it comes to us, and we say, I'm sorry, I've got a biblical worldview. Hmm. We're bigots, we're this, we're that, we're homophobic and everything. I think, yeah, I, I think I agree. I think, actually, that the Muslims that they're tolerant of are people who are not really Muslims. Like the Christians they're tolerant of are, are liberal Christians. Um, and I think in a similar way, those who are really living consistent with Islam, our society is massively intolerant of. Um, those who are living consistently with Islam, I think our society is massively intolerant of. Um, so the school cases in, in Birmingham would be a classic example of that. Uh, but what, what secularisation does, it... It basically tries to squeeze everyone into this mould, to, to push God to the periphery, to make God entirely a personal, subjective being. And, and our society will tolerate whatever religion you are as long as you accept that secularisation of your religion. Um, that, yeah, basically. Which is liberalism, whether it's in Islam or Christianity or Judaism. So liberal Judaism is accepted, but conservative Orthodox Judaism is scorned. Yeah. And it's because he is the truth. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That everything just fights and, against. And we hate the light. Yeah. What it does. Great. Um, what can we do to keep going? And this brings us into Hebrews. And a coffee break almost. There's a community was a big one. Like, yes. We picked up on what you just said about being really easy to like, fall out of just a habit. Like, you've got friends going, hey, we missed. Yeah, and Hebrews 10 will give us an even better reason for going to church. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's great. What else? Don't be surprised. So, yeah. All of the talk of understanding the history and how Christianity is perceived and sometimes what our friends are going through so that it doesn't, it's not a shock when we have that struggle. Yeah. We just take it on board. Yeah, comfort and ease is not the norm. It's not what we should be pursuing. It's not what we should be expecting, knowing that. Yeah. Anything else? Persevere. Sorry, and then we'll come back. Yeah. Persevere. Persevere. We need to persevere. What does perseverance mean, though, in this context? <laughs> it may have been. <laughs> Probably not, though. Yeah. 
And looking forward means looking to Jesus, the ascended king, the high priest, who's already in the Holy of Holies, yeah. That's great. Brilliant. Thank you. Right. Just before we go to coffee break, uh, we're going to go through the book of Hebrews really, really quickly, but you're going to do it in groups, okay? So, the big message, I think, in the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And I've broken it down into 12 sections, and it just so happens that I can see 12 groups here. So... Uh, this group here, I'd like you to take uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, which can be very easy because it's just four verses. Uh, this group here, chapter 1, 4 to 2, 4. Uh, the group behind, which is just about a group, uh, could you take uh, w- uh, chapter 2, verse 5 to 18? Uh, the group behind, chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, then the group down here, chapter 4, verse 14 to chapter 5, verse 10. Um, This group, chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 20. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 1, to chapter 8, verse 13. Group at the back, chapter 9, verse 1, to chapter 10, verse 18. Um, Group at the front, chapter 10, verse 19, to 39. Uh, Next group, chapter 11, verse 1, to 40, the the Hall of Faith fame. Uh, Then chapter 12, verses 1, to 29. And finally, chapter 13. Now, I've given you a suggested summary... But I'd like you to look through the passage and think, what does it teach about why Jesus is better, or, or who is better than, or what he brings a better thing of? And then how does that speak into the life of the hearers that we've been... The life of the hearers, those, those this was preached to, those who received this letter, or, or whatever it was. Okay? Um, we're going to spend 10 minutes on this after the refreshments break. Uh, and then we're going to feed back, okay? So have a quick read of it now before the break. And then in your groups, so you've got four minutes to read your passage, whether it's four verses or two chapters. Um, and then tea and coffee, then discuss it, and then feedback. Okay, uh, so group number one. You guys better be finished because you only have three verses. Okay, so what is this, what is this section saying? Great. 
So one of the things it says at the start is that Jesus, uh, that God in the past spoke at many times and in different ways. It's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Lots of different people speaking, for God speaking through them at different times and in different ways. Different genres, psalms, prophets, everything. But now God has spoken once and finally in the person of Jesus. And that's a really big word for us today as we come under all these pressures, as we're told there's no such thing as truth. As we say that, you know, your view is your view and my view is my view. This is no. There is a better word. God has spoken fully and finally in Jesus, and everything else is measured by that. And that's a great encouragement when we're tempted to, to turn back. Okay, next group. You had uh, chapter 1, verse 4, uh, through to chapter 2, verse 4. What do you come up with? Yes. Great, yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Great. What what's important about angels? Yes. They are there to serve. So, so angels are high, and in Jewish thought, they're very high because things were mediated through angels. So the writer of the book of Hebrews takes the kind of highest being that can be imagined and shows how Jesus is better. And did you pick up why Jesus is better than the angels? What is he that the angels are not? He's the son Yes, he's the son of God. The angels worship him because as the son of God, he is king. He is king. So he is better than the angels because the angels exist to serve, but Jesus is the king. Of course, the gospel account shows that he's the king who came to serve and not to be served. Therefore, do not turn back, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2. Okay, next one. Chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. Jesus is better. Better what? Say that again. He overcame death, yes. How? By dying, yes. Yeah. Did he stay dead? No. Yes. Yeah. Yep, that's great. Good. Um, what's the context? So our problem as Christians is that we always go straight to Jesus' death and resurrection, okay? We always go for the bullseye. But what's the wider context there? Because the, we, could, we could take that from every single passage here. What's the wider context of verses 5 to 18 of chapter 2? So that's towards the end of the passage when it talks about his high priestly role. Right at the beginning of the passage, it, it, 
it mentions that, um, quoting from um, Psalm 8, uh, that, um, that man is made lower than the angels, and God the Son himself became lower than the angels when he assumed a human nature. So he was made like us in every way, including in his humanity being below the angels. But he didn't stay that way. So through his death and his resurrection, he brought about a new form of humanity, which is a ruling humanity that rules even over the angels. That's the bigger picture. He brings about a better humanity. He assumes our weak humanity. But through his work, through his death and resurrection, he brings about a better form of humanity. He becomes the author of our eternal salvation. Um, chapter 3, verses one to chapter 4, verse 13. I thought this was a group up the back, but no one did it, did they? <laughs> no. Oh, yes, go on. Uh, no, uh, I, I just also wanted to say something on the same uh, about the group here. Yeah. Uh, that verse 10, which talks about bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of this nation. That was so relevant to the Jews. Yes. Yes, that he's the pioneer, he's the one who's trailblazed away for their salvation. A better Moses in that sense. Yeah, yeah, great. So no one did, chapter 3, verse Let me summarise that. Um, I think that's teaching that, that Jesus brings about a better rest. Uh, so Augustine famously says that our soul is restless until it finds its rest in you. And that's the picture we see going on throughout the Old Testament, um, the, the Israelites escape uh, from Pharaoh's hand, uh, led by Moses, which is the start of chapter 3. But uh, once they've left, once they've passed through the Red Sea, they're, they're wandering in the wilderness and they rebel. They, they, in the language here, they harden their hearts, they rebel against God, they grumble that he hasn't provided what they had back in Egypt. And as a result, they do not enter God's rest. They do not enter the promised land. But the burden here is that Jesus brings about a better rest, a Sabbath rest, chapter 4, a lasting rest that the the promised land was just a picture of. Jesus ends the problem of the hardened hearts and he has given us his word, the the double-edged sword, to be the root that challenges our hard hearts and brings us to faith and repentance and trust in him to deliver us into that better rest. Uh, chapter 4, verse 4 to 5, verse, uh, 4, 14 to 5, 10. Great. Yeah. Yeah, the, um, uh, the first part I thought was um, Jesus, you know, when we, if we hold fast, we will realise that he has been there with us. He's aware of all our mm. frailties. And where is he when he's there with us? Uh, where is he when he's with us in the first part of the passage? Uh, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, yes. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Yeah. So he is there yeah. in his humanity in heaven, mm-hmm. and we are with him. We have access to him. Yeah. Keep going. The second part was saying, saying here is uh, that he gave himself as a sacrifice. He became the sacrifice. And then the third part, um, 
he was a priest in the order of Melchizedek who represented us before God. And, you know, that's basically a, a, a brief overview of it. Great. Thank you. Yeah. So the big message here is Jesus is the better high priest. The high priest represented humanity before God and God before humanity. And as such, needed to be that perfect representative. He needed to be fully human. Now, at last, we have one who is fully God and fully human. So he can fully represent God to us and fully represent us to God. He can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And through his perfect life, he can enter God's presence and bring us with him which is the glory of chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. He, he and he alone is the one who, verse 16, enables us to approach God's throne with confidence. Because he's already gone in there, bringing our humanity with him. It's brilliant. Uh, next group, you had um, chapter uh, 5, verse 11, through to 6, verse 20, which is a little digression in the sermon's argument. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Abraham's a big focus here, isn't he? And Abraham's like a classic example given these amazing promises, and sometimes he clings to them and walks by faith, and other times he and Sarah doubt it. And, and it's the question will we cling to those promises and go forwards in faith, or, or will we be those who shrink back into kind of works based righteousness, trying to make it happen? And of course, Jesus, as we see later on in the book, he's, he's the ultimate Abraham. The one who truly trusted the promises of God, who for the joy set before him endured the scorn of the cross, who believed the covenant he'd made with his father. Yeah, better Abraham. Next group, chapter 7, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 13. Great, Jesus is better because he can offer one sacrifice for all time, which we'll come on to in the next section as well. Uh, but particularly the, the comparison with Melchizedek is saying that, that Aaron was the priest of the old covenant. Uh, and the old covenant uh, required all of the paraphernalia, required repeated sacrifices, um, was, was a, a, a temporal covenant. But now you have Melchizedek, who, who is this shadowy figure who appears in the early chapters of Genesis, who comes from Jerusalem, who is not of the priestly line of Aaron, and yet is a priest and a king of Salem, which is kind of the origin of Jerusalem. And he is that priest king of a better covenant, a covenant that does not need repeated sacrifices, a covenant that doesn't just forgive past sins, but transforms lives as well. This, this covenant of the law written on our hearts. And Jesus is that fulfillment of Melchizedek who brings about that better covenant. Great. Uh, group at the back. Uh, you must be on chapter uh, 9, verse 1 to 10, 18. Yeah, we thought this uh, is obviously Jesus being better than uh, the temple, better than uh, 
limited like the temple was, was a, a short-term solution like the temple was, that there is eternity in Jesus and that, you know, his pastoral implication is that that's a very freeing thing, that's for all time, it's much uh, deeper and eternal than kind of temporal and physical like the temple was. Great, thank you. And what's significant about the sacrifice that Jesus makes? Why is he a better sacrifice? Yeah. One time. One time. His blood is shed for one time and opens the way not just into the, the Holy of Holies in a tent, but his one sacrifice for all time opens the way into the Holy of Holies of heaven forever. Great. This gang. 10, 19 to 39. Hmm. With a rope tied around his leg. Jesus has already done it. He's already brought you in. How, how can you turn back? Surround yourself with one another to fix your eyes on him and keep going. Yeah, brilliant. Better reason to persevere. Next group. And the reason they persevered is because their hope was not fixed on that temporal, short-term hope, but fixed on Jesus. Uh, and he's the reason we will persevere, following on from chapter 10. Chapter 12. The passage starts with um, an encouragement to, uh, in, in our Christian lives, uh, looking to Jesus, the author and then goes on to uh, talk about yeah it's really interesting isn't it so um we live in a culture where the highest pursuit is happiness isn't it people want to be happy do whatever makes you happy and happiness is entirely a, a kind of subjective inner feeling isn't it whereas the emphasis in scripture is that we should be pursuing joy 
And, and joy is something which we find in something outside of us. And, and Jesus, in his humanity, had that, didn't he? But why did he endure the scorn of the cross? For the joy set before him of what it would be like in heaven, with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and all the redeemed. And that's why he persevered. And that's why the pain of discipline is for our benefit, even here and now. So we don't satisfy ourselves merely with the pursuit of happiness, but we chase after joy. The same joy that led Christ to the cross, and through the cross and into heaven. Um, this will be much disputed, but I would suggest um, that uh, the, we don't read about happiness particularly in Scripture, but we do read a lot about joy. Um, joy is always rooted in an external object. We find joy in something, whereas usually when we're talking about happiness, we're talking about a, a feeling and a state of mind. Now, you can have happiness as a result of joy, but the pursuit should be joy. Does that make sense? Um, and I think one of, the, one of the reasons for the collective malaise in society today is, is that we, we find, um, we think we are doing well when we feel happy and we're looking internally for that happiness. And, and you know, scriptures teach, it, it's all about love and finding joy. Even God within himself, as father, it's, it's all about love and finding joy. So even God within himself as Father, Son and Holy Spirit has eternally experienced love and joy within himself, within the plurality, within the unity of God. And that's what we're made for. We're not made to look inside to find happiness. We're not made to try and seek happiness in things that disappear like a, you know, England winning against Australia. <laughs> Although we do find happiness in that for a time until we get beat by New Zealand. Um, but we're made to seek joy in another. And that lasts. That's a very Christian thing you just said. <laughs> no, it's just an English pessimistic thing. Huh? No, they haven't. Sorry, Irish contingent at the back. And they may not win. And Ireland have won two times out of three. Yep, get it. Right, good. Before I get myself in trouble... Um, where were we? Uh, chapter 13. So, chapter 13 was the final exaltation, pulling it all together, um, and really the explanation that Jesus has completed absolutely everything that they've been looking for within the, the Judaism system, um, and in that there's nothing else to look forward to, so therefore be confident and worship continually because it's finished, it's still, there is nothing else beyond this. Yeah. So continue to do good. But then there's this, this strange bit in, the, in verse 17 where it says, I'm going outside the city mm-hmm. where, Jesus was, where, where Jesus was sacrificed. And so, is it 30? So, 13, yeah. But go out from the city. In other words, go out from the world and go and associate with the shame that Jesus has taken for you because it's the only thing worth continually worshipping. Hmm. Yes. And that all flows out of going deep with Jesus, doesn't it? It's interesting. These are incredibly practical verses in chapter 13. They, you know, they deal with faithfulness in marriage, uh, faithfulness to leadership, going out, going to those most vulnerable, loving each other. But it all flows out of 12 chapters of going deep with Jesus and realising that he's better. 
that the way we grow as Christians, the way we go out, the way we honour God in our lives is by going deep with Jesus. And that's the message of Hebrews. The closer we get to... Yeah, I was, I was talking about exactly this um, with someone this week. <clears throat> I think um, the longer we're a Christian, the longer we're professing faith, the, the more amplified it becomes. Um, so the more we've been through hard times, the, the more we've seen our hopes not fulfilled, external to Jesus, the more we either become bitter and frustrated and angry, or the more we trust and have peace and have joy. Um, so people in my generation, I think we, we can do that middle thing where we sway one way or the other. Um, but I think once you've been a Christian 30, 40 years, you're either bitter and just clinging on by your fingertips, or, or you're resting in the joy of these truths and finding chapter 13 a delight. Um, yeah. Thank you for your commitment to that statement. Thank you. Great. Can I just run quickly through the other books? Yep. Just for your interest. <laughs> Uh, so, Book of James. Uh, the author of the Book of James is uh, James, uh, the brother of Jesus. Uh, Galatians. <laughs> uh, I mean, people will dispute everything, but I'm pretty sure it's James. Um, Galatians chapter one, verse nineteen introduces him as the brother of Jesus. Um, James led the church in Jerusalem from a very early stage in the church's life. Uh, the date is unknown. Um, people date it anywhere between um, the 40s to the 90s AD. Um, generally, I would go with an earlier dating, although not as early as the mid-40s. Um, who are the recipients? They are the Christians scattered in the Jewish uh, dispersion, chapter 1, verse 1. What's it about? Uh, the big emphasis in the book of James is on consistent Christian living on enduring hardship and pursuing justice. Big emphasis is on consistent Christian living, enduring hardship and pursuing justice, showing the works that flow out of faith. The writer has real concern about the church being damaged by angry and judgmental words and by oppression of the poor. Um, First Peter. Uh, First Peter is written by Peter. (laughs) Actually, no. Um, (laughs) It's authored by Peter, but chapter 5, verse 12, it is written down by Silas. Um, But Peter is the author. Uh, It dates probably from around about 64 to 65 AD, uh, and it was written from Rome, so during Peter's imprisonment. Um, Chapter 5, verse 13. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. Babylon is used as as a synonym for Rome, so the church in Rome sends greetings. Uh, Who was it written to? Uh, Mostly to Gentile believers. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 14, uh, verse 18. Uh, Chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. 
all suggest that. And it is written to those in the five provinces of Asia Minor that are listed there in verse 1. What is its content? Well, it's primarily a letter of encouragement to Christians undergoing persecution, so a lot like Hebrews. It tells its readers that to suffer for Christ's sake should not surprise us, and we should submit to suffering in the way that Christ did. We should follow our Saviour. And the readers are encouraged to see this as a great gospel opportunity, whether it's suffering under the state or or suffering in a marriage to an unbeliever. This is a gospel opportunity to commend the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Second Peter. Uh, well, no, the believers scattered in the five places. Yep. I think the dispersion was probably wider, um, so I think First Peter is more more focused um, in its in its audience. But obviously, the letters went around very quickly to all the churches, which is how the canon of scripture was formed, really by the end of the first century, not in the fourth century, as some people suggest. Yeah, potentially, yeah. So my expectation is that James went to a, a very wide audience. And obviously, first Peter did, but its original intent was those five provinces. Second Peter. Um, the author of Second Peter is again the Apostle Peter, although liberal scholars dispute it. Um, date, 64 AD. Recipients, uh, we don't know, uh, but it does seem to be a specific group of believers. Uh, and in terms of its content, it seems to be a farewell speech, urging Christian growth and perseverance in the face of false teachers who, who both denied the second coming and just lived boldly in sin. So people were saying that Jesus is not returning and you can do what you like. And Peter wants to remind his readers that they already have everything they need for godly living. And that everything they need, just look at chapter two, uh, chapter one rather, verse three. The everything they need for a godly life is their knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. What do you need for godly living? Knowledge of Jesus. That's the way on in the Christian life. That is the way to pursue holiness, knowing Jesus. And of course, it's not knowledge in an abstract sense of knowing things about Jesus. It is knowing things about Jesus, but it's knowing Jesus himself. It's what you need for godly living. Um, First John. Uh, First John and Second John and Third John, same author. Um, In Second John and Third John, he identifies himself as the elder uh, and church tradition maintains that this is the Apostle John who wrote John's Gospel and Revelation. Um, The date is unknown, but probably towards the end of the first century, so the 80s or 90s AD. Uh, The recipients are a Christian community or communities that are known by John. He refers to them as dear children and dear friends. Uh, The content. 
This letter is written to provide assurance for believers. It is written to provide assurance for believers. One of the great tragedies of how this letter has been treated since is that it is usually preached in a way uh, where uh, the preacher talks about the many tests about whether you're truly (coughs) believing and it's used to undermine assurance. So it it is full of tests. So chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. We're Christians if we keep his commands. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 10, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them that can make them stumble. Chapter 4, verse 2, thus it is how you recognise the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So we have tests of whether you're a Christian. Do you confess your sins? Do you love your brothers and sisters? Do you obey God's commands? Do you believe that God has come in human flesh in Christ? But those tests aren't given to make you think, oh no, I'm not a Christian. This this letter should be taught, this letter should be preached in a way that roots us in confidence that we are found in Christ and assurance that we can keep going. Because actually, God has already begun an incredible work in us. Um, Second John, uh, same author, uh, probably um, a similar date. Uh, The recipients, they're referred to as uh, the lady chosen by God, verse 1. It's either a single congregation, or it could be a woman who hosts a house church, uh, and her children are the members of that community. Um, John is writing after the defection of uh, the false prophets from his community to warn against their denial of the incarnation of Christ. Uh, The big themes here are love and incarnation. And this is a warning to the surrounding churches. If these false prophets come in amongst you, be on your guard. Note the words that are repeated. Truth is mentioned five times. Love is mentioned five times. And commandment is mentioned four times in just 13 verses. Be on your guard about these people who deny the incarnation and teach a lack of love. And then third John is very similar. Um, Same author again. Uh, The recipient is Gaius. A beloved friend of John, who lives in another town, and to other believers as well who are greeted by name, in verse 14. Now, an earlier letter to the church had been mocked by this guy called Diotrephes, who also refused hospitality to John's friend and disfellowshipped those who showed hospitality to John's friend. Consequently, John writes to Gaius, urging him to welcome Demetrius. When he visits the church. Uh, the, the big burden of this is the obligations for Christian hospitality. So second John is saying, beware of false teachers. Third John is saying, welcome in Christian brothers and sisters. Show hospitality because we are partners in the gospel. Uh, and finally, uh, the book of Jude. Uh, Jude, in verse 1, describes himself as a brother of James, which of course probably means that he's a brother of Jesus as well. But notice how he refers to himself, simply a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Uh, It was probably written in the late first century. 
Uh, we probably know that because uh, verse 17 seems to suggest that the apostolic faith was, was well in place. Uh, we don't know the recipients. It's probably a single congregation, predominantly made up of Jewish Christians, who, who knew the Old Testament well, but also knew the apocalyptic literature, the, the intertestamental literature well, because there are references to the first book of Enoch uh, in Jude. And the letter is full of warning against false teachers who, verse 4, have secretly slipped in among you. Uh, these false teachers, they've turned the doctrine of grace into license within the church. Because you're freely forgiven, you can do whatever you want. And Jude wants to remind his readers the importance of holy living, of the fact that, that the Lord Jesus is returning and he will return in both judgment and salvation. So verses 3 to 19 are a warning against false teachers. Verses 20 to 23 is an exhortation to persevere, to keep going. And advice on how to care for those who've been impacted by the false teaching. So that is possibly the quickest summary of 1 Peter to Jude. Certainly I've ever done. Any questions? Okay. Um, I'd have to check that, but I imagine it's doulos, uh, which is a fairly standard term for servant slave. I will double check it though. In the next break, and then I'll let you have an answer. Yeah. There was a question in the back. Sorry? Oh, I didn't, did I? Sorry. Um, probably late 90s. So it's probably the latest of the letters. Of course, John's gospel is the latest of the gospels because John hung on a long time as we learn from Revelation. Yeah. Tim. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Yeah, because we often, we often think back to times in our Christian life when we've had a particular experience of God, and we think, I, I wish it could be like that again. And, you know, I should right to wish it could be like that again. But the reality was, for those who saw Jesus face to face, it wasn't like that for a long period. The exhortation is to keep going and go deeper with Jesus. It is incredible. And where is the earliest fragment of the Bible in the world? John Ryland's library. And what's it from? John's Gospel. John's Gospel. Yeah. Which is amazing because if John's Gospel is written in the 90s, and this fragment is arguably from as early as 120, 130 AD, that's the earliest fragment from just 40 years after. It's incredible. There's nothing like it. <laughs> 